Welcome to Perennial Meditations, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Dr. Brian Russell, the author of Centering Prayer. This episode is a recent recording from our last virtual meetup on the art and wisdom of contemplative practices, which was part of our Perennial Habits course we've been running over the last couple months. Brian is a professor of biblical studies and a transformational coach for pastors and spiritually minded professionals. Some of you may already be familiar with Brian. He is a previous guest on In Search of Wisdom, where we've explored centering prayer, forgiveness, discernment, and other topics. In the conversation, Brian and I discuss the benefits of stillness practices, knowing ourselves, the challenges of sitting quietly, centering prayer in the four R's, the art of acceptance, knowing what matters in life, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope you do as well. You can learn more and connect with Brian at Brian Russell. PhD.com. All right, without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Brian Russell. So, just a, a bit of background of, of how I met Brian to kick it off. I was looking at the at the time frame and uh the first conversation that we had on In Search of Wisdom was a little over a year and a half ago. So yeah, time flies. That was our first conversation, and it was focused on Brian's book, Centering Prayer. And since then, we've connected uh, other times and had chats about forgiveness and discernment, and Thomas Merton, and and other topics. So I'm really grateful to Brian for taking the time to connect again. And uh, chat about this shared interest that that we have and important interest of integrating stillness into daily life. So thank you so much, Brian. And maybe if you could kick it off with just a brief kind of introduction and whatever you think might be useful to to share. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the on the show. And just grateful for everyone who's who's, uh, who's taking part of this and even watching it later. Yeah, I'm uh, been. Uh, pretty much a lifelong uh, Christian. I grew up in Ohio, always curious. And and so it, since the call into ministry, right when I was getting ready to go to college, so ended up um, pursuing a history degree. And then I went to seminary and then did really well in seminary, went ahead and got a PhD in biblical studies, which led me to my main career focus, which I've been a professor of biblical studies for um, actually, 23 straight years now. As of July 1st, I'll be starting my 24th year. So I've been a, a professor for a long time. The Centering Prayer piece came in. It's a, a spiritual formation practice, but I, I've added that little element to my life, falling through just through some major difficulties that I faced, where I just felt like everything was falling apart for me personally and relationally went through a very difficult um, uh, divorce after a 20-year first marriage. Uh, I am remarried now and almost for 10 years now, but 
that was a, a real crisis of faith for me because it didn't make any sense why what was happening. And I discovered, um, even though I'd been a seminary professor for a while, I I discovered the rich, the deeper wells of uh, the Christian movement with specifically these stillness practices. And that's how you connected with me. I wrote the book Centering Prayer, which it's kind of funny, the Bible professor wrote it, but that was really me processing what I had learned about silence and solitude and how I saw or, or the ways that I saw and sensed that God had worked in my life to really um, bring my heart back to life, you you would uh, you might say. Um, so beyond the, uh, my work as a professor, I also do some mentoring and coaching, mostly with pastors, but essentially anybody that's interested in um, going deeper in their spiritual life. All right, well, beautiful. Thank you, Brian. I thought we could kick it off with just a question around maybe the benefits of stillness practices as, as you see them, and, and maybe even more broadly speaking, like the art of solitude, however big that you want to make it. Um, you know, how do you see the the benefits of, of stillness? Yeah, and... Uh... I would say that I would go so far to say is that stillness in these silence and solitude practices is perhaps the hidden gem under uh, Christian faith. And it's probably true of most religions, but I'm a Christian, so I'm only going to speak as a, as a Christian. And stillness is a necessity for the a deep spiritual life because stillness, silence, puts us in a posture where essentially you kind of have two things that can happen when you're in an undistracted state. Cause that's what we're talking about. When we talk about stillness, solitude, silence, we're getting away from the noise. Uh, what you become aware of almost immediately is that silence isn't quiet. And so stillness ironically forces you to sort of confront your inner life uh, while simultaneously it puts you in a position where you can encounter um, God um, in a different way um, uh, than you do when you say re be reading scripture or you know reading a theology book or actually praying with words. So so stillness puts us in a posture where we can essentially, you know, from like we talk about in search of wisdom, put us in a position where we can go all the way back, if you want to, to the to the Delphic Oracle, where you had that know yourself. And so it puts you in a position where you're radically open to self-knowledge and also open to uh the ultimate knowledge of of who God is in all and as as God, not just as an idea that we might postulate with a thought or with some kind of writing. Um so stillness allows us to strip away all the noise and chatter and just be. Something that's fascinating to me and mysterious. I experience this personally, what I'm getting ready to say is um so creating a new habit is a difficult thing. We we generally know that it can be challenging. But adopting or even sometimes continuing, and I can experience this in the way of, of continuing these stillness type of practices 
can be a challenging thing. I guess my question to frame it is, why are some of these stillness practices that have many benefits that you've, you know, outlined difficult to adopt for, for many of us? Yeah. Well, I think there's, we can talk about it from the habit side. I think the ultimate obstacle is, and I think this is part of, part of even the, the salesy marketing that we run into, like, like my book title, for example, this the publisher gave it this, but it's Centering Prayer, Sitting Quietly in God's Presence Can Change Your Life, right? That's a really nice title. <laughs> and it's true where you can say, you know, like people that would study, say, mindfulness meditation, oh, this is going to, you know, you're going to, it's going to be bells and whistles and you're going to just feel great. And that's true too. But to get to the benefits, you actually get confronted with the truth about yourself and it's beautiful parts of yourself, but you also will get confronted with the hurt parts of yourself, the traumatized parts of yourself, the sinful parts of yourself. If I want to go that far from theological perspective and, you know, and honestly, who really wants to look into all their own garbage that lives on the inside? And so that's probably beyond just getting a habit going, there's a challenge. Nietzsche has a, a quote that I like that I, I put in my book. Um, and, you know, obviously he wasn't uh, exactly known as a Christian person, but uh, he was he was a spiritual person. And he said, when we're alone and quiet, we're afraid that something will be whispered in our ear. And so we hate the silence and drug ourselves with social life. You know, so, he, so, so I think there's an insight there. There's a dark side that comes up as you have to, because you get, again, you get confronted with, again, the beautiful parts of yourself and also the hurt parts. And that's hard. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think of even like Solzhenitsyn, you know, the, you know, he talks about, you know, if only it were, e if, if only it were easy to separate out the evil people from the good people. But then he says, you know, the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man and who wants to cut out a piece of his own heart. Um, you know, I would suggest that one of the hard parts about adopting these practices is if you do it for a while, this doesn't usually happen right away. There's this, you're confronted with them. Um, with your need to, I would say, and, and it's a good confrontation as long as you don't push the stuff down. Instead, do exactly what, um, you know, also when we talk about what centering prayer is, you got to give it to God. Otherwise, you just repress it and you can't grow. So I think that's the block. There's an existential block to it. Mm -hmm. And there's also the habit piece, which, um, you know, you could still want to do the work, but you have to be able to create a container that allows you to practice silence. And it's not always easy. You have small kids, for example, or you just have a random schedule. You have to be intentional to be able to use a stillness practice regularly in your life. Let me let me stop there and see if uh, you want to follow up. No, I, I love it, and I, it seems to be, I don't know, for me, such an important thing to understand um, that then that may come up. You know, in the way of adopting a stillness practice, and, and maybe it's a natural thing to have a bit of internal resistance sometimes. I'm curious if we could spend a bit of time on maybe the art of acceptance piece yeah. of how we accept ourselves completely. But before we get to that, maybe now could be a, a good opportunity to talk a little bit about centering prayer in the four R's. And maybe if we could 
talk about the four R's and acceptance and all of that type of stuff. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the uh, centering prayer is uh, is what you can also call it the prayer of silence or silent meditative prayer, and it's essentially a technique that can lead us into what mystics would call contemplative prayer, which is the experience of essentially. It's hard to describe because this is beyond word stuff, but it's the idea that God actually can pray into us, and you essentially encounter God. God's isness with the own isness of your own being. So it's this kind of mystical experience, <laughs> difficult to describe with words. You know, I ask, you know, people how to, to, to describe it sometimes. It just, it's a sense of calmness, sense of peace. Sometimes it feels just like love, but it's, um, you know, as soon as you start describing it, you drop back out of it. So centering prayer is essentially a practice where you take a, it, it's a technique, you use a prayer word, you know, like you can use Jesus. This goes back to a, a medieval text called the Cloud of Unknowing, which even has roots further back into earlier periods in Christianity. But the idea was to take a sacred word. It's not a mantra, but it's a word that when you become aware that you're thinking about something, that your own conscious mind is um, focusing on something you use the prayer word as a vehicle to um, let go of the thought. So it's not pushing things down. It's essentially using a prayer word to surrender whatever you're focusing on back to your intention, which is I'm going to sit in silence um, before the triune God, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit that that uh, loves me. And so that's, that's, that's what centering prayer is. Now, the four R's is a reminder because the biggest impediment – to centering prayer is just the avalanche of thoughts that you go through your mind. And, and it can be meaningless chatter. It can be um, a great idea that you don't want to remember. It could be uh, some kind of bad memory that you have, but whatever's kind of going through your mind. And by thoughts, I would also include bodily sensations because sometimes different parts of our bodies will react to, you know, the, emotional energy inside of us. I'd also include the emotions, thoughts, whether you see words when you're thinking or whether you see a picture and watch a movie in your head. That's what we're talking about. And so the four R's are a reminder when you become aware of what's going on inside your body. It's um, resist no thought, um, react to no thought, or retain, resist no thought, retain no thought. So you're not supposed to try to make yourself stop thinking. But when you become aware of a thought, you're not supposed to retain it either. You're not supposed to just park on it. It's to let it go. Then the third R is react to no thought. And we'll probably come back to that because I think you want to talk about acceptance. But So you're not going to react um, to any thought, and whether it's a beautiful one or a scary one. Instead, the last of the R's is gently return to your intention of sitting before God in silence with your sacred word. So again, resist no thought, retain no thought, react to no thought. And you might even just say gently return to Jesus with your sacred word. And that gently is, and it is a word that's intentionally used there. Mm. I, I just want to bring in some sort of visual because that, that helps me sometimes. And it's always stuck with me. I, I think it was Thomas Keating who talks about, this visual of these thoughts of boats going by and it's you just don't want to necessarily get on any of these boats <laughs> you know you want to yeah let them uh let them go go by 
Now, around acceptance, which is maybe tied in with many other stillness practices, it's 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 something that that comes up probably across wisdom traditions. To me, it, it seems a bit counterintuitive or paradoxical that you can come to a greater level of self-acceptance when you're not reacting or retaining you know any of these particular thoughts you're essentially letting them pass by any anything come to mind there to to make sense of that or anything that um you know help helps you there that could uh help us out yeah it's a, a couple of things um from a practical perspective, I think this goes back to like recovery language is a saying, what you resist persists. Mm. So sometimes, especially because usually what is it that we're having a hard time accepting? It's some hurt part of ourselves. It's some bad memory. It's some something that we feel guilty about, something that we're ashamed of. And our tendency is to push it down. I always think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in that story after they eat the fruit. Um, they realize they're naked. And so they hide behind a tree when it says God's walking through the woods, you know, and, and God says, hey, Adam, where are you? As though he didn't know where they were, right? But he's actually comes looking for them, but they want to hide. There's something in the human condition that wants to hide the hurt parts of ourselves and it's uh and but what's always interesting in the centering prayer posture it sort of assumes um and you and you can learn this with experience too but you have to trust that god already knows everything that's on the inside of you and so and that god loves you uh, therefore, you don't have to hide anything, no matter how painful it is, because God kind of knows anyway. So it's more of a matter of God giving you the gift of say, just, you know, like, to, well, I'll speak for myself, Brian, give it to me, those hurt parts. And, and that, and, you know, when you realize that God accepts you, and that's, you know, I define, uh, you know, grace is accepting the fact that you're unconditionally accepted. It's that moment of, of grace. And so if you can do the prayer with that posture, you can slowly let hurt parts of yourself or even embarrassing parts of yourself out. Like, you know, I, I tell the story in my book and it's, it's a hundred percent true. Cause I, I kind of stumbled into these practices and I didn't have, you know, I wasn't in a monastery. I didn't have a spiritual director one of my friends knew I was really hurting and showed me how to do this this technique. And so I'm sitting out in my back patio and I've been doing it for a while. And for a long time, I would just, um, I had, it was kind of like two recurring thoughts. I would, um, I just realized how mad I was. And I would just have the, the tapes, the little boats on my river were just past episodes where, you know, somebody had hurt me in some way. And of course, my I'm getting stuck in the loop and I'm I'm winning at this time. I'm saying what I didn't say. I'm um, you know, I'm re-arguing those things. And then the other thing that popped up, um, I would just have I would think about like sex, you know, <laughs> just be having like these fantasy thoughts. And I remember sitting back on the porch thinking, God, help me. I'm going to get, you know, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't really thinking God was going to zap me with a lightning bolt, but I'm thinking, isn't this ironic? 
I say I'm sitting here to sit in silence with the God who loves me, and all I am is really angry um, sometimes, and then I bounce back, sometimes I'll have sexual thoughts, and, uh, you know, both completely normal, but that that was the part that was in me. Then I realized, I'm like, wait a second, what am I supposed to do? Resist no thought, retain no thought, react to no thought, because I'd been reacting. Instead, what was I supposed to do? Just Just give it to Jesus who loves me. And, you know, and that goes back to that whole seven deadly sins tradition, which is really a description of the interior life of the early monks, um, men and women who went into the desert, because these same things showed up in them. And God cleans us out by us accepting what's inside of us, the good, the bad, the indifferent, the ugly, the um, just normal. Because, I mean, a lot of thoughts are like, did I start my watch? Oh, I hear a bird. I mean, who cares about that kind of stuff? But it's like, but God accepts all that stuff and we just we just give it to God. It's fascinating that there are potentially emotions within us that we're not aware of. Uh, your story um, sounds very similar to uh, Jack Cornfield, uh, a popular kind of modern mindfulness who was uh became a a Thai monk at a at a young age and experienced a lot of anger and uh, he tells the story of going to his particular you know superior whatever you you might call it in that tradition and he said good sit with it. It's an, it's an interesting thing. So I have like one question around, like, say that hurt, maybe some of those uh, emotions. Um, sometimes there's this uh, thing of, of trauma, maybe something that happened to us. Maybe sometimes it's something that we did to others. And Anthony DeMello is someone that I like. He uses this uh, analogy of... Um, you know, when you throw paint in the air, like the sky isn't stained by that particular color. And his point is that, which seems true to me, and I'm curious your thoughts, please disagree if you if you don't think so. But in a way, it seems like some of this stillness, some of this encountering the hurt it seems like in a way you come out on the other side in a way like that analogy of the paint, you know, you're not necessarily like the sky isn't painted the color of that bucket that was thrown in the air. You're not really like it, it can be released in a, in a way, I guess if, is what I'm, what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. No, I no, I like that. I, and I like DeMello's, uh, his works too. It reminds me when we start talking about trauma, and I've been thinking a lot about uh, just trauma recently. Um, there's a modern author, his name's Gabor Mate. He's a Canadian um, doctor, and he writes a lot about trauma. And he has a really helpful definition that I think connects with the spiritual. He, he says that um, trauma isn't what happened to us. Trauma is what happens in us because of what happened to us. And so, in other words, and he says that's good news. Um, and notice the distinction, because you can't change what happened, whatever happened, whatever the traumatic event, whether we're the ones that did it and we feel super guilty about it, or we were the victim of some, you know, some, some horrible act, 
you can't change what happened, but what the things like these stillness practices um, can do is they can help you release the stuff that's going on on the inside because of what happened a long time ago. You know, anybody that's had some kind of, um, you know, PTSD experience, um, whether it's from military stuff or, you know, you were a victim when you were a kid or, you know, different or, you know, even children of, of divorce, uh, you know, I've seen some of that in my own, my own kids, you get these triggers, right? You hear a sound and you, and it sends you back to some other place or you, you know, if you're a kid and you, you know, your parents get divorced, you go on vacation somewhere and you're where you used to be and, you, and something doesn't seem right on the inside because you're, that was where your, your old family vacationed and it just does something to you. That That's, that's trauma. That's what it does on the inside. But like these stillness practices allow us to see that stuff slowly. This is not a quick fix thing. That's why Thomas Keating, he called it divine therapy. It's like, let let the God who loves you do deep psychotherapy on you. And what you're doing is you're ultimately turning down the volume on those wounds on the inside that were used to screaming at us. And now they they can slowly be turned down into whispers and healing happens that way. Um, I've seen that in my own life. I mean, people that knew me a long time ago, I mean, I've always been, you know, probably would have liked me if you would have met me 15 years ago, but I'm not the same anymore. My, like, I'm not as ramped up as I used to be. I'm more calm. Um, I'm chilled in some ways. And it's because um, God has done a deeper work inside of my life by helping me to see the hurts, the guilt, the shame, the fear, and also the ways that I was you know, I'm not going to say I have big T trauma, but I have some small T traumas in my life. And um, silence and solitude have worked that. Now, let me throw one other thing in here, because I know we're talking about centering prayer, but um, I would be remiss if I didn't say I also do another practice, too, that I think works in combination. I've been a journaler for a long time as well, which is another silent solitude practice. And a big part of my journaling practice, it's based on the prayer of exam, and it's not perfect um, representation of that tradition, but it's close to it is like, and I usually do this either right before I do centering prayer or right after it's, I do gratitude. And then I literally write out what seems to be bothering me. And I'm really attentive to noticing sensations and, you know, and over the years, what's interesting is um, I don't write that much in that section anymore, but I'll tell you what, like 10, 12 years ago, I would be writing half a page every day on stuff, but it's a matter of just slowly releasing these things. And I and I would say, right, whether you write it or do centering prayer, you're giving the hurt parts of yourself, the scary thoughts, the embarrassing thoughts, you're accepting them and just giving them to God over against pushing them down or hiding behind a tree metaphorically. And I like um, that Lord of the Rings, the third movie, um, I forget what the city is, but it's where it's it's, it's one of the dramatic battles at the end. And uh, uh, um, Gandalf is there at the city gate. There's this big battering ram. It's going to bash into the gate and all these scary orcs and trolls are going to come through. And uh, Gandalf gives, he kind of rallies the troops. He goes, men of Gondor, whatever comes through that gate, stand your ground. You know, and that's, and and, and I would say that's something like the, the, the space that we need to put ourselves in in silence and solitude, whatever shows up in your inner world, just be with it. 
and then gently don't put gently, not push it down, gently release it to God. And you may have to do that multiple times. That's where the prayer word comes down, multiple sessions. But every time you do that surrender flex and give it to God, you're slowly building up spiritual muscles and you're pushing that hurt part of yourself. You're releasing that hurt part of yourself to God. And God is, you know, God is a loving God um, that I would, I believe God is. Um, God can take care of that stuff a lot better than I can. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing up other habits as well. I'm I'm calling them habits or practices, but we've touched on throughout this course and we're, wrapping it up here towards the end, but things like journaling, the dichotomy of control, the view from above, gratefulness. It seems like maybe we don't want to try to incorporate all of these new habits or practices at one time, but they can work together. Like in in terms of these uh, four R's that um, don't react Sometimes that that can be, I mean, even in daily life, as we're navigating, that can be really challenging. Maybe the view from above or remembering, you know, what's up to us, what's not up to us. Is there an opportunity for um, for gratefulness here? So some of these other practices seems like they can they can help us with that in the way of in the midst of daily life in Eastern meditation uh, practices, they they often talk about meditation off the cushion or transitioning to this thing of of it, it. You know, it's not just about within that stillness practice. The point is to integrate that into daily life. I'm curious, like these four R's, you know, is it possible for to integrate these into daily life, maybe on a 24 seven, how do we, even if it's, it seems helpful and wise to maybe gently return to the present moment, even if it's not necessarily, you know, a prayer word, how do we gently or, or notice when we're reactionary? No, it's good. And, uh, and again, I I don't want to claim to be a saint on all these things, though. This is the kind of growing edge that I'm, I'm trying to incorporate it more. I mean, when I started out, um, my centering prayer practice was my centering prayer practice. You know, the journaling was something to do at night and 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 or in the morning and at night. Um, but as what I've noticed, uh, and I, I I had this experience. I was in a really difficult meeting. I don't know. This is four or five years ago. Is before I wrote the book, and um, I was getting attacked in the meeting over something that I had done. And it was really interesting. And, and, I'm, and I'm thinking like, this is really uncomfortable and really embarrassing. And I noticed that I was like, I was sitting down and I was sitting right next to VP and the vice and the president of this institution. I'm getting attacked by this guy down at the other end of the table. I'm thinking like, oh boy, this is embarrassing. Then I thought, for some reason, I thought I'd just start doing centering prayer. And so I didn't like close my eyes, but I'm like, just release the thought. So I didn't say anything. And, uh, and it was amazing what happened. Um, uh, I didn't have to defend myself. Um, the president and the vice president just start, started arguing with the other person at the end of the table. And when the meeting was over, another guy that was there, he looked at me and he goes, how did you do that? And I'm like, what? He goes, what are you smoking? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, I've never seen anybody do that in a meeting. You didn't defend yourself at all. And somehow you 
<laughs> somehow you somehow it came out really fine. And I'm like, and I thought, you know, how did I do that? I'm like, I know what I did. I just stayed present, right? And so that was a good lesson. Now, um, practically what I've done, and 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 again, I have to say I'm I'm 54. My youngest kid is 22 now, and I'm, you know, I'm not quite an empty nest. We have some of our kids living at the house, but they're all adults. Um, and so I basically have a free schedule to, you know, I don't have to worry about in the morning. So I'm able to build this nice, consistent container where I can do centering prayer several times during the day. But what I've committed to is I use visual anchors to remind me, like when I'm going into a meeting, um, if I'm in person, I try to look at the door and think to myself, I want to be an ambassador of abundance to whoever's in that room. And so it's like, that brings me back into the present. Um, before I jump on a Zoom call, I try to get up here to the office at least a couple minutes early and just have one minute of silence. Um, when I find myself distracted, there's other things I do. I can sometimes I'll play with my fingers a little bit just to like pull myself back in. Um, you can sit in a chair and I'm like, I try to find my butt muscles while I'm sitting in the chair. And, you know, I'm not thinking about my butt most of the time, but if I do that, I'm instantly in my body and I can feel my, my, you know, my butt on the chair now. Right. It's just so interesting. So those are some of the little tricks that I use when I'm in the store. Um, well, I've, I've been doing this a long time. So I get curious whenever I get a weird feeling or something. And I'm like, wow, isn't that interesting? Or like I'm at a store and I feel awkward because I'm in a line and I'm an introvert. I don't know what to do. And I'm I'm looking at everybody looking at their phones. I'm like, you know, I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm just going to chill here for a second and just hold the space and take some breaths. So in other words, I think there's a lot of things that we can do to essentially practice God's presence. And it doesn't mean you have to be in silence, you can bring the silence and the stillness into any moment. But I will say, I don't think you can do that easily if you don't do actually have some silent cave time all to yourself. But you can definitely take the cave with you when you go. If you just kind of learn and get curious about your own reactions to things and I've gotten better at that. I'm not perfect. You can still get me all wound up, freaked out, and probably can still get me to make a fool out of myself and getting into an argument in public. But it's getting a little trickier because I'm I'm getting better at my dealing with my own emotional energy now than I used to. And and I and I I just give that to these consistent habits because I've been doing this really since t- about 2011. So it's I've been almost it's been 12 years now actually. Nice. Yeah, so it's just to encourage everybody. It's not a, you know, it's not not thirty days to a change life or whatever. Even it's it's it's. But if you do this consistently over time, everybody around you will benefit from it, and you will too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I love it, and it's um, it is such a helpful reframing. I think the, and I, I generally think like the lifelong approach. Like I'm calling this perennial habits for for a reason. Like often we think of, um, I don't know, sometimes I just think of like dental hygiene, like brushing and flossing. Like there isn't a time that I see in my mind where I'm going to be done with that particular, you know, project. And some of these things, if we can just maybe relax a little bit and think that it's a, a lifelong thing. This is just, these are just practices that we don't necessarily grow out of or need to grow out of 
you know, is uh, is so, so helpful, I think. But you brought up a, a lot of things around creativity, like you talked about in that little moment of in the store, a minute here, you know, a minute before coming on Zoom. And some of the things that we've talked about is um, like models of change. These people that are really into the creating new habits. There's a the fog behavior model from from the book Tiny Habits, um, and he he has this uh, B map. So it's behavior. What is it that you're trying to do? Motivation. You've got to know why are you doing it. And I think we've been talking about like some of the benefits that that people have to contemplate and choose that on their own. What is it that you want to integrate into daily life? And then there's the ability piece. And some things are maybe really easy to do. And Fogg talks about the more difficult it is, the harder it is for that habit essentially to grow roots. And and sometimes I think that can be maybe one of uh, the reasons that a stillness practice can be challenging because it's I I guess in a way, if you sit down and partake in a particular stillness practice, oftentimes at the end of 10 minutes or 20 minutes, you don't necessarily feel like you hit it out of the park or it can feel that way. I I think it maybe is helpful to reframe of just doing it is you hit it out of the park, you know, just, just the thing of doing it, that is it. And maybe let go of the good and bad type of stuff. Um, how do you think about that? And maybe how might you help someone to get over that? You know, did I do it good or did I do it bad session type of thing? Yeah. The, the key thing is you don't evaluate it at all. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll just, you know, I've been, I do, I'm pretty consistent. I, I, I don't actually know if I've missed a day. It's been several years since I've even missed a single day of doing some amount of centering prayer. I don't always get my longer sessions and sometimes I do multiple sessions, but I've I've been able to do it consistently and I'll just say you never really know you know like sometimes it goes by like that, like 20 minutes is just gone. Sometimes 20 minutes was like it's an hour still. Um when I used to first start it was like 1 minute seemed like it was an eternity sometimes, right? And it and so you never really know what's going on because it's it's sort of a measure of your own what's going on in your own life. Um, you know, if everything's kind of going reasonably well um, and you don't have a lot of like I'm an anxious person in general. But so my anxiety can mess up centering prayer sessions because I can't break through the thought loop sometimes. I'll just, you know, I'll just say that. And, 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 and so I do have what you might say are bad, but the whole point is I showed up and it's just like going to the gym. It's you're just the worst thing that happens is you have to use your prayer word multiple times, which means you get to return to Jesus a whole bunch of times. And so really, the only way that you can fail at the practice is, is not is not to do it. You know, just essentially, you know, I say set the clock, honor that commitment. And if you honor the time, you don't have to worry about evaluating because that's not that isn't the point. The point is I'm showing up and this is a surrender practice and I'm going to surrender this amount of time uh, to God and, you know, and I would say, even on the hardest sessions, you probably do learn something. You learn, you know, it's persistence, faithfulness, and, and, um, and, and showing up. Um, and, you know, and I would say, for me, isn't, you know, to, 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 
I have a unique story because I literally I was crashing and burning when I started doing centering prayer because I was, you know, I was felt like I was losing my faith. You know, I'd lost. Um, I was worried about my kids. I was worried about my finances. I was um, going to be I didn't know if I was going to be able to keep my ordination, though, because I was getting divorced. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff going on. And so to me, um, I knew I needed something. I needed something um, that was going to help. And because nothing else, I was a pastor when this was happening. So it's like, what's, you know, I knew what I would have told somebody and my own advice didn't help me (laughs) at all these pastor friends, right? Reading the Bible more didn't help me going to church. It was just, it was just so hard, but I found these stillness things. Like I just had, I found a moment of peace. And so for me, it was like, I was going to learn how to do it. It's, and it was I mean, there's no greater motivation than no other option is for me. And so that's that's kind of how it worked. Um, so I would just say to someone, um, you know, experiment, experiment with journaling, um, experiment with the centering prayer and see which one of these really connects. Maybe they both will, but don't give up and give it a season um, and, you know, make it easy. Like I get up and have coffee in the morning and that's pretty much my signal that I'm time to do centering prayer. Now I do it with my wife now, which makes it even easier. So we literally wake up at 6am, make coffee, drink a little bit of coffee. And by 620, we're doing centering prayer. And that's how my day starts. So I got that habit locked in with like a ritual now. Right. But then I'll come back to it at different times. So just figure out a space where you know you can do it. I used to go to my office when I was working in an office. I drive and I would tell I would tell my assistant, "Don't I? I'm not gonna. I can't be bothered for a half hour." And I would go in and just do centering prayer before I started working. So I had a space. So, so that would be the thing I'd encourage: find an intentional space where you know most of the time you're going to be able to set aside whatever amount of time you, you want to do, whether it's five minutes, twenty minutes one minute, 30 minutes, whatever, but just find that space and make it easy for yourself by making it into a, you know, kind of a ritual. Mm. I love that. And that connects with the, the fourth point in that model, which is prompt, you know, you talked about, and, and there's other research that talks about the level of clarity, clarity is key. So there's a, there's a ritual there. There's maybe the it's triggered with the with the coffee, but some sort of um, prompt thing. And to me, some of that takes a bit of creativity. We we talked a little bit about the the elephant and the rider that and and some of the listeners may know what I'm talking about here of shaping the path. So, like, how do you shape the the path so it's more likely for this particular habit to to occur? In um, one example that I was thinking of just to, to share with the listeners as as some a way to shape the path, if you will, I have a cushion that I use that is back here in the corner. And my day generally starts right here at, at this desk. I come back from dropping my kids off and I'm here. But I can put that cushion right on this seat. So it's super obvious. I have to literally, to not do it, I have to move it, this cushion, and go set it back somewhere. So it, it's it's this thing of uh, shaping the the path, if you will, but also what um, uh, I'm blanking a little bit on the, oh, James Clear from Atomic mm-hmm. Habits. He outlines these four things of 
How do you make it obvious? How do you make it attractive? How do you make it easy? And then how do you make it satisfying? And some of those things is like, how can we make it obvious? Little things of if you wanted to stop drinking soda, simply putting it in the back of the <laughs> of the uh, fridge, you know, so it's a little bit more difficult. If it's a run, putting the shoes, if it's a journaling practice, how do you make that particular journal that you're using in the most obvious place where you literally can't miss it? So some of these creativity tactics can really... Um, are kind of essential to essentially, you know, at least grow some roots with that with that particular habit. Um, so I love that you shared a bit of uh, details around your practice. And I think that's really, really helpful for us. And maybe as a as a wrap up question, if I could throw a, a big question at you. The first habit that we talked about in this course was called discerning the way. And we've talked, we had a whole conversation about discernment. You know, it's like, what type of life do you actually want to lead? Like, you know, what really matters to you? Now, this particular stillness practice or a stillness practice is not necessarily, you know, designed. You're not necessarily um, retaining thoughts. You know, you're practicing, as we talked about, kind of letting things go. But how do you see learning to be still, you know, connecting with maybe clarity on what matters. Cause it seems like that for the, for the whole motivation thing of why do you want to do it? You talked about, you know, there was a real need there. Um, but somebody that's maybe not in that place of just, how do you really determine what matters and, and where does stillness come in the play to, to help us there? That's good. Yeah. And, and what this is where I would, I think I would expand the conversation a little bit into, I use the language of, of a container for your life. And, it, and the container doesn't have to like make your life small, but it gives you guardrails. And, 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 and essentially, you know, Christians would call it a, a rule of life. This is your um, habits, your the habits that you have implemented in your life, both positive ones and negative ones that and allow you to i would say grow into a person who values you know the virtues right so you have to decide so um you know like for me um I have scripture um i have sabbath practice um um i eat good i exercise uh i sleep um i read good books, you know, from the perennial wisdom tradition. I read a lot of things in religion. So I have these inputs that are coming into my life. And, you know, one of the questions I like to ask is what does my soul really need? So I want to, do I have a set of soul enhancing practices that allow me to grow uh, in love for God and neighbor? And then you also, though, have to address what am I tolerating in my life that's actually warring against the life that I say I want to live, right? Now, this is where these contemplative practices really come in because what stillness practices do is they make you abundantly aware of the divided nature of your own heart, or at least I'm going to say they, they make me, I'll make this by myself because I'm not going to claim that, but they make me abundantly aware of the divided nature of my own heart. 
And the inner BS that goes on in my life, even when I'm making decisions that I would say I'm doing for the Lord, I can see that there's mixed motivations that maybe I'm really just doing this for Brian, right? And so the stillness practices have cut through the crap at some level. So I don't have to pretend like I'm a saint um, because I know I'm not. Um, You know, I still want to be, you know, um, like to be a saint, but rather what I'd really like to just be is loved by God and be loving um, and not, I don't need the label. Right. And so to, to answer, get back to the question about clarity and discernment, the stillness practices allow you to see the narratives and the stories in your own life that are mixed and you know, you can get a sense of what you think is going to be happening, but you can do it with a with a sense that you don't have to be a hundred percent right. Because a lot of, I think, the mistake a lot of folks make is, I mean, we all want certainty, but the reality is, most of the world, most of life is uncertain, and the stillness practices make you okay with that. And so instead of just getting clarity, again, I love clarity. And um, I I go back to like Mother Teresa's story that she had when a a Jesuit priest asked her to pray for him. And she said, what do you want me to pray for? And uh, he goes, well, pray that I get clarity about what I'm supposed to do next. And she goes, well, I can't pray that because I've never had clarity in my life. Um, But I will pray that for the thing that God gave me, God taught me to trust. And again, I've noticed when I can really surrender the need to know every step along the path, that the path seems to appear somehow. (laughs) But when I cling to the idea that I got to know exactly how it's going to work out, that's when I've gotten into trouble. So this is a probably really backwards kind of crazy way of answering your question. But I would suggest that the stillness practices give you a different kind of clarity, a clarity that's comfortable in the midst of uncertainty, that's rooted just in a deep trust that the universe bends towards love and that I just need to hold that space in my life. And so as I walk the path, I can do, you know, like Micah 6, 8, um, what does God want us to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God, you know, and, and when you show up, pay attention. God's got way more invested in this is than we do, as one of my mentors likes to say. So let me stop there. That's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but that's that was would be some of my thoughts on how this contemplative stuff connects with clarity. Because again, I will say, everybody, I love clarity. I just don't always get it. And I've just... <laughs> beautiful. No, that, that is an absolutely beautiful way to to wrap up the the conversation. And again, I'm Super grateful for the for the time, not only tonight, but the, the previous conversations as well. We'll end it there and, and just say uh, thank you so much. Thank you for subscribing and listening to another episode of the Perennial Meditations podcast. I hope you found something useful for daily life. If so, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time. Be wise and be well.